Well, let's turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, and we're looking at verses 1 through 14. Or you may just want to look on in your in your bulletin, maybe grab a pen. There's a lot of things maybe you can underline uh, this morning as we go through this text. It's really, truly a remarkable, amazing passage. To give you a little brief context, Paul had just been telling this church in Rome about how abundant God's grace is, that somehow, no matter how much sin seems to increase, God's grace abounds more and more. But now Paul, in our passage, it's like he knows what people are going to be thinking. So he addresses a question that must be on his readers' minds and ours as well. If God's grace is so abundant, why not just sin even more? After all, God has to forgive. Ever wonder about that? Listen to how Paul addresses this question. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were baptized, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if you have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will no longer die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For if the death he died, he died one, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not, therefore, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, if you want to know his way, we must know his word, right? Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, this passage is like honey uh, to our lips. It is so sweet, so important to know what you've done for us in Christ Jesus. May we build upon the truth that we already know about Christ by studying this passage. And may we um, consider everything that we might walk in this new freedom you've given us. Amen. Before I became a Christian at age 29, I used to engage uh, Christians by asking skeptical questions, questions which I believe could not be answered adequately enough for me to believe what Christians believe. And one question went something along this way. 
So you Christians believe that God forgives all of your sin, right? Okay. And all of them, right? Past, present, and future. Well, if that's true, then God has given you freedom to go out and rob banks and kill people. After all, he's forgiven you, right? Gotcha. Have you ever wondered about this? Maybe you still do. And Paul addresses this very question in our passage. If God responds to all our sin with more and more grace, listen, then why not just sin more and more so that God's grace may abound to you more and more? That's what Paul says in verse 1. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Now, remember, Paul is writing to Christians in Rome. He, he isn't addressing some new desire that they have now, to, now that they found Jesus to go wild and go out and rob banks and head to Vegas and deal methamphetamines, all right? The key word here is to continue. Are we to continue in sin? Are we to, listen, are we to stay where we are? Are we to be comfortable with the sin patterns that are in our lives already? All the while telling ourselves it doesn't matter because we have the grace of God. Are we to continue with our petty grudges? Are we to continue to belittle our spouses or gossip or be stingy or defensive or selfish or angry or argumentative or fill in the blank with whatever sin that seems to so easily entangle you? Paul is asking... Are we to continue to make excuses? Are we simply to consider everything okay because we've got Jesus? I don't have to change. Is that not the mindset that pervades American Christianity? I can stay where I am, and it's God's grace that gives me my excuse. That's what Paul is dealing with here. And this problem hits pretty close to home, doesn't it? Are there not areas in your life that are at odds with what God would call you to be as one of his children? And do you not, because I do it myself, do you not tend to downplay or make excuses so that you may continue? And so, what is the answer? I hope you know that Paul's answer isn't. Well, that's why we have the law of God. So much preaching today is God saved you by grace. Now go be good Christians and go do the law. Don't get me wrong. The law of God is good. It is holy. It is to be a delight. And for the believer, the, the, the law of God is a light unto our path. But Christian, it is not our path. So what is Paul's answer? How is it that we're no longer to continue in sin so that grace may abound? In verse 7, Paul says that a Christian is what? Is one who has been set free from sin. That is what we'll look at this morning. Just as Jesus Christ died to sin and risen to new life for us, so too we who belong to Christ have died with him and risen to new life with him. In Christ, we experience resurrected freedom. But what does that mean? And how does this change us in any way? 
This morning we're going to investigate this resurrected freedom for which Christ died to give us. We're going to see because Christ died and set us free from sin, we must consider ourselves dead to sin. As we investigate this truth, we're going to divide our time into two areas. Paul says there are things we must know, and so we'll look at those. And then in light of this knowledge, he says there is something we must do. First, what are we to know? I don't know if you picked up on it, but repeatedly Paul in this passage uses the words we know or we do not know, which tells us that there are important truths or things for us to know that will change how we live. And the, these two things are one. Jesus' death means we are dead to sin. And Jesus' resurrection means we are freed from the rule of sin in our lives. First, Jesus' death means we're dead to sin. Paul begins by asking the Christians in Rome, are we to use the grace of God as an excuse to continue on in our sins? And in verse 2, he answers his own question with an exclamatory statement. He says, by no means. Now, if he's writing to New Jersey mobsters, he'd say, forget about it, you know. But he says, by no means are we to continue. we got a few Jerseyites here, that's good. By no means are we to continue with our pet sins. Why not? Paul's answer is another question in verse 2. And underline this, not in your Bibles, but maybe in your bulletin. This 11-word question is meant to be our answer. How can we who died to sin still live in it? It's a great question. It summarizes all that Paul is teaching here in this passage. How can we who died to sin still live it? Now, perhaps you're thinking, how in the world is it that we've died to sin? Uh, what does Paul mean? You're right. I'm glad you asked. Paul answers your questions with another question in verse 3. Look at that. He says, do you not know? Something for us to know. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, when Paul uses the word baptized here, he isn't so much pointing us to that day when we were, when we were baptized with water. You perhaps remember that day. Paul's word for baptism here is meant to encapsulate a Christian's entire conversion experience or reality. In other words, at one point you were far off from God, walking in darkness and living as a slave to sin, and you didn't even know it. But then, in a work of the Holy Spirit, you came to see your need for Christ, and you turned from your self-absorbed life to, to embrace Christ as Savior and Lord. That, that's what Paul is getting at. That He uses the term baptism to, to encapsulate that whole conversion experience. Now, here is where this passage is a real game-changer for us Christians. Have you noticed how many times in this passage Paul uses phrases such as in Christ or into Christ or with him or in Christ Jesus at least nine times. And if you look at the New Testament, over 170 times phrases such as this are used. The theological term for this is union with Christ. You can write that down. Union with Christ, right? A Christian is someone who is in union with Christ. I won't go through all the union with Christ passages in our verse, but verse 5 makes it pretty clear, right? Look what it says. For we have been what? United with him in a death like his. We shall certainly be united with him 
in a resurrection like his. Listen, union with Christ is perhaps the most important truth you can come to know from Scripture. And yet few Christians know it. Why is it? Well, Paul says, do you not know, right? He knows that we have a hard time understanding this. Some of you may say, but Mark, aren't the doctrines of salvation or adoption or sanctification or, or the doctrine of eternal life in the age to come, aren't these not more important? No. Why is that? Because, my friends, you experience salvation by virtue of your union with Christ. You experience adoption into God's family by virtue of your union with Christ. You experience sanctification in your life by virtue of your union with Christ. You will come to know the eternal glories of heaven in the age to come by virtue of your union with Christ. That's how important it is. It is so important that when someone asks you, what does it mean to be a Christian? The best possible answer you could give is to be a Christian means I'm united with Christ. So what is union with Christ? Union with Christ is a work whereby God, according to his mysterious power, he takes your life and hides it in Christ Jesus. It's like having a bookmark in a book. I take this bookmark and I put it in this book and wherever this book goes, this bookmark goes. If I bury this book in the ground, this bookmark goes with it. If I burn this book in a fire, the bookmark is consumed with the book. Christian, union with Christ means that your life is a bookmark that God has placed into Christ's very life. At conversion, you became baptized into Christ so that your life became hidden in Christ. And so listen, when Jesus lived that perfect, lovely, beautiful, obedient life on earth, you were there in Christ. When Jesus hung on the cross, bearing the sins of the world, you were hanging there as he bore them. When Jesus lay in the tomb, you were there with Christ in him, dead. And of course, now when Jesus rose from the grave in victory, you rose with him. Listen, you must get this straight. It's it's not as if you were there with him, but rather you were there in Christ. Union with Christ is not like an empty illustration as well it's as if you were there on the Christ on the cross with Christ but not exactly no when Paul says in verse 6 we know that our old self was crucified with him he is not saying we've been crucified with Christ metaphorically somehow some way God truly made it so that you, in a literal way, have been crucified with Christ. Paul, in speaking to Christians, is saying that you died in Christ's death. And in verse 4, he says, we were buried, therefore, with him. See that union with Christ's language by baptism into death. Now, what is God's purpose for doing this for us? Continuing in verse 4, in order that. This is a purpose clause. They're great in the Bible. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
Christian, does this not enlarge your heart towards God? God has united you to Christ's death and resurrection with the purpose that we may walk in newness of life. God has opened up a new way in Christ, a resurrected way of living in freedom. Christian, you have died. That old you that only knew how to sin and enjoyed sin is dead. You are a new person in Christ. And so Paul's argument is like this. Do you follow it? He's like, I know he doesn't, I don't know if he likes butterflies, but he basically is saying, what mature butterfly would ever want to return to living as a caterpillar? Or as Paul states in verse 2, how could we who died to sin still live in it? So, first, Jesus' death means that we are dead to sin. Second, Jesus' resurrection means we are freed from the rule of sin over our lives. It's true, isn't it? You don't just want forgiveness of sin, do you? You want freedom from sin in your life. To no longer have your life patterned by knee-jerk reactions towards bitterness and anger and envy and sloth and love of wealth and possessions and jealousy or fill in the blank. And so listen, if you long to experience true freedom from sin in your life, consider what Paul describes in verses 5 through 10. What does Paul do? He lays out an argument that we are to follow and then draw conclusions from. Once again, observe the union with Christ's language. Feel free to underline all the in Christ, with Christ, by Christ, all those things. Verse 5, if we have been united with him in a death like his, then logically we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Continuing in verse 6, Paul again states something we know, or at least need to know. We know that our old self was crucified with him. Why? In order that, first, the body of sin might be brought to nothing, Second, listen, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So first, our old self was crucified, dead, buried, gone. Have you ever seen um, a dead person? I remember standing over my father in the funeral parlor, laying there, dead. As much as I like to ask him to do something, <laughs> he couldn't respond. Paul says that the Christian has died to sin. Not so much that we don't sin at times, we do. And we need to become better at repenting of our sin. But Paul is saying that we've died to the power of sin and that we no longer are subjected to sin as the master that we live under. Which leads, secondly, to this amazing reality that union with Christ brings us that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Perhaps some of you are saying, what? Slaves to sin? Sounds harsh. But it is true. Paul's point is that Jesus came to free us so that we no longer be enslaved to sin. He's not making this up. Earlier, Grace and Jordan read um, from, from the Gospel of John in, ver- in chapter 8. 
Here's what, here's what happened. There's this interchange between Jesus and his followers. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, I can't believe this answer. Um, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. What about those 400 years in Egypt, right? And are you now not under Roman authority and rule? But anyway, how is it that you say you will become free? Before we just laugh at that, let's understand something. Understanding Christ, understanding what the gospel calls us to, really requires a lot of mental energy, right? It, we, it's not easy to understand Jesus' words sometimes. But here is what he says to follow. He, he said, Jesus says, truly, truly, I, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. A slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son, that's Jesus the son, sets you free, you will be free indeed. I don't know how to make it any more plain, my friends. We are born slaves to sin, and Jesus came so that we would be freed from that reality of having to live under that rule in our lives. We are born slaves to sin, and he came to free us from its dominion. Now, here's where I may tick off some of you guys, so let me apologize ahead of time. First, let me make this point clear. I love kids, all right? And second, um, I was once a kid, so there we go. That being said, there's a point that we need to consider and accept. Jesus and Paul tell us that we're born slaves to sin. We're all born with a fallen nature. And parents, parents know this all too well, right? Why is it that you do not have to teach your toddler to hide the cookie behind his or her back? Why is it you don't have to teach your child to stomp their feet in disobedience to you? No one has to teach your kids that. They do it. And I'm sorry to say we're all born hiding and hoarding and stomping our feet. We just become a little more advanced at it when we get older. It comes natural to us. That is why you have to teach toddlers to share. And even then, teaching them to share, you've only got like a 50-50 chance they're going to, right? This is why the Bible... Um, why is this? The Bible gives us an answer, and I think the answer best lines up with our human experience, is that every human being is, is born this way. It's why, it's why the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. It's why Voltaire says that, that no snowflake in the avalanche ever feels responsible, right? Now, if this stuff rattles you this morning, you're like, I think these guys are a little whacked. Please know, it used to rattle me. Um, Feel free to, to, to come up after the service and talk to me, ask some questions. Maybe I can help answer some questions, but, but I might not be able to cover your particular question in this sermon. All right. Now, perhaps this will help you see what I'm talking about. You're probably wondering, what in the world is this bulletin? Insert this wonderful black and white chart that's been provided for you. I've... <clears throat> It, I've titled it St. Augustine on Original Sin and Human Responsibility Regarding Sin. Wow, it's quite a treatise, isn't it? All right. St. Augustine, uh, you know, 4th, 5th century. Uh, he's the Bishop of Hippo, Northern Africa. 
his writings, the things that he uncovered in Scripture, are treasures in the church to this very day. Um, now, when we say original sin, we're not talking about the first sin ever. Original sin refers to the result of that first sin of Adam and Eve. The result is that this world, and humans in particular, have undergone a moral fall. The human race has been corrupted. Not that we still don't reflect God's glory in many wonderful ways, um, but everything about our lives has been tainted by sin and corrupted. So original sin is a condition that we're all born into. We are born with a nature that cannot help but sin. That's why little kids sin without even being taught how to. But not that we sin in everything we do, but everything we do is marred by sin, either ours or somebody else's, right? So look at this chart. This chart shows four states of humanity and our possibilities in each state with regards to sin. The first is titled pre-fall. This is, this is Adam and Eve state in the garden before sin entered into the world. Pre-fall, what does it say? Adam was both able to sin and able not to sin. He was completely free to either sin or not to sin. And of course, you know the story. Adam believed the lies of Satan and turned from God and rebelled. And now the reality for us is what we see in the next stage. Every person born on earth is born with a nature that cannot help but sin. Just cannot help it. I'm not saying at times we don't do wonderful things. But just try to go a day, a week, a year with, without having prideful thoughts or, or derogatory comments or lustful thoughts. In this fallen state, mankind is described as first, able to sin. Are you guys able to sin? Yeah, I think we are. But I think it might take a moment to chew on the next one. Second, we see that man is unable, unable, ding, ding, to not sin. Unable to not sin. Chew on that. In our natural state from birth, we are all people who are unable to not sin. Those who have, have not been set free by Christ from slavery to sin are unable to not sin. Just try it. It's impossible to go through life without sinning. And if you think you don't sin, well, that's pridefulness, <laughs> which is, of course, of course, a sin. But then comes Christ. As Jesus said, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. When Christ sets you free, this third state in our chart is now your reality, but you need Christ in order to get there. The person who is reborn in Christ is still able to sin. But now he or she is, is what? Able to not sin. Not that you become sinless. No, we can and sadly we do continue to sin. But think about it. Because of your union with Christ, you are now set free not to sin. You've been brought out from underneath its dominion over your life. Look at Paul's words at the beginning of verse 5. We have certainly been united with him in a resurrection like his. And so, verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. That's the, that's the dominion of sin. Skipping down to verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you. 
Picture what Christ has done for you this way. You guys like horses? You guys like horses, right? If you got any tickets to the Hamptons Classic, just just let me know. Um, Before Christ sets you free from this bondage or this dominion of sin in your life, you're like a horse who has only spent all of its life in a muddy horse pen, which the horse is unable to see out of. Yes, you're free to move about within the confines. You're free to choose when and where you lie down. You even get to eat food when it's available. You can freely prance around with the other horses. Life seems good, at least good enough. But imagine a day when the gate is opened up to you and you pass through into a large, lush, green field with no fences. You step out of the mud into the clean rolling hills. Your food is ever present. Just lower your head down. You got something to eat. You move freely around and you drink from streams of fresh flowing water. You don't need to kick or fight your fellow horses in the pen anymore. And you find that over time, your body actually is strengthened and becomes even more powerful by all this free exercise. My friends, in the gospel, God sets us free from the muddy pen. And so do you see Paul's point? Why on earth would a free horse return to the muddy pen? And likewise, why on earth would a Christian, having died to sin and set free from its effects, its dominion, why would, why would we ever return to it? That's his argument. So those are the two things that we are to come to know. Because we are in union with Christ, Jesus' death means we're dead to sin, and Jesus' resurrection means we're freed from the rule of sin over our lives. Now there's something we must do. Look at verse 11. You also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now the Greek word here that we translate to consider is a Greek term that is used in accounting, like bookkeeping. It means to reckon, uh, to add up. You know, get your calculator out. To know what you have, your assets, in order you can, in order that you can make the right decisions and allocate your resources. You know, when I was a boy, I used to keep my spare coins in a, in a jar. I still have one. It's just, who, who gets change anymore? So like, takes forever to fill up. But, um, I would save up for something like a new yo-yo or like a model that, an airplane that I could, build, and and the coins would slowly stack up until I thought I had enough, but I really didn't know. Now, a new Dunkin' Butterfly yo-yo was like $4.50, but I wouldn't know if I had enough until I did what? Counted them. So I would take the coins and pour them out on a desk, and I would lean in with excitement, and I'd count them all up and move them from one side to the other, 430, 440, 450. A little tax. Ah, coins to spare. I've got it. I had the money. I just didn't know it until when? Until I counted it. Till I reckoned it. Till I added it up. But once I had counted it, I was able to reckon what assets were at my disposal and act upon it. Christians, listen, here's what Paul is calling us to do. He calls us to take all of the coins of God's grace that he's given you in Christ that we've just talked about and add them up and then act upon it. 
Reckon all that you have in these first ten verses. Treasure all that union with Christ means to you. Let's go through it. You've died to Christ. No, you've died to sin. Check. (laughs) You didn't die to Christ. You died with Christ to sin. Check. You've been baptized into Christ's death. Check. You've been raised with Christ into newness of life. Check. Your old self was crucified with Christ. Check. The body of sin that, that used to be you has been brought to nothing. Check. You are no longer enslaved to sin. Check. You've been set free from sin's power. Check. You've died with Christ so that you now live with Christ. Check. Christ now lives for the glory of God, and therefore so to you. Check. Those are the first ten verses. Paul's point is this. Reckon this. Consider this. We need to use our minds more, right? This is a call to use, use our minds. Darren Patrick, an old friend of mine, once said, we, we need to stop listening to ourselves and talking to ourselves. We need to start talking to ourselves. That, so these first ten verses, how, how could you and I, once we've reckoned and considered all this, how could we ever use God's grace to keep on making excuses for the sin in our life that still remains? And so, my friends, this is how we are to live each day. We need to remind ourselves what God has done for us in Christ. And when temptations come, and they will, we need to reckon, we need to consider, I have died to sin, and I am alive in Christ. I've been set free from the power of sin. I have a new God-given nature. So how could I, who have died to sin, how could I live it any longer? Does that make sense? And now in verses 12 to 14, we're almost done. Paul outlines what this daily reckoning looks like. After we've taken to heart verses 1 through 11, therefore let us what? Verse 12. Let us not sin, let, let not sin therefore reign, dominion, in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. My friends, it is up to us by the means of God's grace to raise our hand to the presence of sin in our lives and say, no more. I will not obey you. I have a new nature that can say no. I'm set free from your power in my life. Verse 13 means we consciously offer ourselves daily as instruments in God's hands. Look at that. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But here's your motivation. But present yourselves to God as what? As those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. I don't know about you, but each and every day of my life is either an opportunity to obey ungodly passions, or it's an opportunity to present myself anew as an instrument for God's purposes. It really is a conscious decision on our part. This isn't let go, let God. This is... Christian, you're called to this. You have everything at your disposal to have this happen. And now walk in this truth. But what Scripture calls us to, is it not? It is hard. Can we at least agree, in light of what we have read and studied, that we are no longer to use God's grace as an excuse for slacking off in our spiritual growth and holiness? Yes, he is patient. He is loving, he is kind, he is gracious, but that is no excuse. Now, 
None of us here are without correction from this text, right? Consider that area in your life that hinders you, that way of thinking, that way of acting, that you so much just want to ignore. This passage says, change the way you see yourself in Christ. Christ died to set you free. Now, what will you use your freedom for? We're going to end with these two questions we're going to answer. First, is it worth it? Two, and how can we do it? Is it worth it? To answer that, we need to look into the future. Please return to that chart I gave you earlier. There's one last stage to ponder. You probably thought I forgot it, right? I didn't. If you are in Christ, there's a day coming when you will enter into the glory that Jesus promises you and consider the possibilities that will only be available to you then. First, you'll be able to not sin. Good. That's nothing new. You've got that now in Christ, do you not? You're able to not sin. But look at the other reality. And seriously, try to wrap your head around it. Earlier this week, I had a young man in my office. He came to faith in Christ this past year. I've been discipling him on a regular basis. And I showed him this chart. And the first three stages were eye-opening to him. But the fourth one blew him away. See, there's a day coming when, listen, you will be unable to sin. Imagine that. Unable. In the new heavens and new earth, you will be incapable of sinning. Why? Because you are in Christ and in heaven. He is incapable of sinning. That reality is yours. It's coming. My my friends, the, the new heaven and new earth in the age to come, it's not a going back to the garden. In the garden, Adam was able to not sin, but he's able to sin. In the age to come, we will not be able to sin at all. It won't even be a possibility. Now, try to wrap your head around that. I don't even know what that looks like. I don't even know what it feels like. I guess it's kind of like a horse that's been totally set free, never able to even go back into the pen again. I don't know. But it's something that should should captivate us. So it's worth it. Let us live today in light of that reality. That's what's coming. How can we go backwards towards the garden? The second question is, how can we do this? The very last verse, 14, is key. Look at it. For sin will have no dominion over you, since we are what? Not under law, but under grace. What is Paul saying, and why is it so key? In the previous chapter and in the next chapter, Paul makes an important truth. He points out that how after God's law came into the world, sin actually increased, not decreased. Not that the law of God is deficient. No, but, but when the law of God comes upon us, it actually works to stimulate sin in us. It's like saying, stop thinking about pink elephants, right? And when someone says, stop thinking about pink elephants, you start thinking about elephants. Maybe yours has a tutu. I don't know. Maybe yours is free in Africa. I don't know. See, I already started it, didn't I? All right. A similar thing happens with the law of God. In, in chapter 7, Paul states that having the law of God that said, thou shall not covet, actually caused him to think more about coveting, right? Paul says that you're not under the law, but for some reasons that's often where Christians go. And so the Christian who hears my sermon might think, well, I just need to do a better job of obeying the law. Guess what? You will find your efforts very hard, very frustrating, When you say to yourself, stop coveting, stop coveting, stop coveting, you'll find that there is no power in the law, and you will find yourself giving in. And when you do covet, 
Satan will be there to whisper in your ear. See, we knew you didn't have it in you. Once again, you failed. You'll never make a good Christian. Give in. Continue in sin. After all, God's grace will abound. Paul wants us to reject the impulse to pick up the law and, and live under it. What is it that Paul says we're now under? We're under grace. This is not a command. It's a promise of God to you. You are under grace now. It's the only grace has the power to free us from the grip of sin. Ray Ortland Jr., great pastor, says, listen, says that sin management, that's living under the law, binds us to our sins. It puts us in hyper-focus on what's wrong with us. Self-awareness is a good and humble thing, he says. But the primary call of the gospel is not hyper-focus on ourselves, but hyper-focus on Christ. Paul's saying that Christ has set us free from resorting to works righteousness through law-keeping. Christ has freed us from a whole entire salvation system that has us trying hard to follow after God's law. Instead of being under that impossible burden that so often leaves us defeated and condemned or prideful because we do it so well. Christ has delivered us to live under God's grace. Listen, it is only when we break away from relating to God by living under his law to relating to living to God under his grace that the power of sin is really broken in our lives. See, to be under the law, there's no freedom to fail. What? You you coveted again? I guess you really didn't mean it that time when you repented last. To be under the law, there's no freedom to fail, but to be under grace means you are free to fail. And when you come to live under God's grace, your prayer sounds something like this. Heavenly Father, I can't believe I coveted again. And the Father responds, Yes, my child, I know, but remember, my love for you is not based on your obedience, but my grace. And when you sin, grace abounds all the more. It never ends. You cannot out-sin my grace. Now remember, I've set you free. Now live free from the dominion of sin. Live free from its condemnation. Now, let's talk about some of those prayer requests you made yesterday. You see how grace changes everything? Your, your Heavenly Father knows that every day is a battle against the sin that tries to reign in your mortal bodies. But living under grace changes everything. On the one hand, we daily reckon all that God has done for us in our union with Christ. And we present ourselves daily as instruments of righteousness. We're not actively looking to sin. And we will not use God's grace as an excuse for any sin in our lives, but we will sin. And when we do, we reckon all over again. And we take joy and comfort that we live under grace. And then all over again, we consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And we embrace with joy Paul's words. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? 
Let's pray. Father, we are a needy but well-loved people. Oh, how we need to know more and more of your grace towards us and how it's not license to sin, but power to be freed from the dominion of sin in our lives. You are such a good father, caring, kind, and loving, and patient. May we trust you in that. May we walk in your grace. Amen.